0: So I want to begin this morning with a little trip to the Pancake House with you. Imagine imagine going to the Pancake House and you want to to have some pancakes, and so the idea is that you'll have pancakes and maple syrup. And we know where maple syrup comes from. So what they do is they make these beautiful pancakes and bring them out, and they bring in a 40-gallon drum of sap. 40 gallon drum of sap and say okay there you go because the syrup's in there the syrup's in there you have to do a little work in order to get it but I mean the syrup is in there Well, of course they don't do that they do all that before you arrive and that wonderful beautiful golden uh, spring tonic is uh, extracted from that sap and it is placed out there on the table for you and um, Instead of the 40-gallon drum, you might have one gallon of maple syrup or something akin to that. What I, what I feel imprompted to do this morning, and especially urged to do this morning, is to bring to you something more refined, something more refined than sometimes I do. Sometimes I share with you kind of extemporaneously, and I'm not going to do that as much this morning. This is a very special day. This is the day of the resurrection. We remember in a special way the resurrection of Messiah Jesus. So I'm going to present to you in a moment five questions, five key questions, but before I do that, I want to go back to 1678 when John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the first part, was published. I'll read to you a section, and this portion I want to read to you has to do with Christian who is had the gospel presented to him or had the law of God presented to him and as a consequence of that he has come under this terrible burden of his own sin. He realizes he is an offender before God and he stands as an offender and a transgressor before God's holy law and that becomes in this allegory of John Bunyan that becomes a burden that he carries literally on his back And he is directed to a certain place, and he goes through a wicket gate, and then after he goes through this wicket gate, he must come to a certain location where his burden will be released from him. And I want to read the portion where his burden is released from him. But remember, before the burden is released from him comes the preaching of the law. Now I saw in my dream that the highway along which Christian was to proceed was fenced in on both sides, with a wall, and the wall was called Salvation. Therefore, burdened Christian ran up this way, though not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. So he ran in this direction until he came to a place where the way ascended up a small hill. And at the top stood a cross, while below it was a sepulcher or a stone tomb. And so I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden fell from off his back, Then it continued to tumble down the hill until it fell into the mouth of the sepulcher and was seen no more. At this Christian felt glad and overjoyed and in his excitement he exclaimed, He has given me rest by means of his sorrow and life by means of his death. The burden has rolled away. Then he stood still for a while to look with wonder and amazement for it was so surprising to him that the sight of the cross should accomplish the release of his burden. This is not just seeing physically a cross. This is seeing with his spirit the eyes of his understanding being open to the meaning of the cross. And as soon as the eyes of his understanding were open to the meaning of the cross, of Christ Jesus, then the burden rolled from his back. But remember how the burden came there in the first place. It was through the preaching of the law. Therefore he looked again and again until, even until inward springs of water flowed down his cheeks. And as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones, or angels, approached and saluted him with the benediction, Let peace be upon you. And so we begin there. But let me say to you this morning that Jesus never celebrated Easter. Jesus never celebrated Easter. Never. The name is pagan-derived and it replaces the Feast of Passover. The death and resurrection of Jesus is foreshadowed in Passover and is the ultimate meaning of Passover. It fulfills Jewish tradition. It does not refer to pagan tradition. However, as important as this is, and this is very, very, very important, this is very, very, very important. And I don't want to just to fluff over this, because this is very important. And by now, every one of us who have had the privilege of hearing this message should be way beyond where we are now, constantly referring to something that is actually an abomination. However, as important as this is, if we remain too long examining it, we may miss essential truth that determines our eternal destiny. And so I'll not dwell on it, but I must mention it. The five questions we want to look at this morning together, number one, who was Jesus of Nazareth? Number two, why was he born? Third question is, what was the meaning of and the purpose of his daily life and by daily life i mean you know his life he lived every day on a daily basis waking and sleeping and during the 33 years of his life what was the meaning and purpose of it and number 4 is was his death necessary and what did it accomplish and the fifth question did he rise literally and bodily from death And how does that impact us? Question number one, who was Jesus of Nazareth? He was the Logos made flesh. He was the word of God that existed eternally with God and was himself God. He spoke all created things into existence. He existed eternally as the one divine essence In a plurality of persons revealed as God the Father, God the Word, and God the Holy Spirit. The plurality of the Godhead is described in numerous places in both Testaments, Old and New. I'll just reference, I could reference so many different places, the very name of God, Elohim, we find in Genesis, is a plural Hebrew word itself. But I'll reference in John chapter 17, in Jesus' from his great high priestly prayer and his words he said as thou hast sent me into the world even so I have also sent them into the world this is two persons as you have sent me into the world even so have I sent these disciples into the world another place in John nevertheless I tell you the truth it is expedient for you that I Jesus Go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come, another person, referring to a third person. But if I, Jesus, if I depart, I, Jesus, will send Him, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, unto you. All things that the Father has are Mine, All things that Father God has are mine, Christ Jesus. Therefore said I that he, the Holy Spirit, shall take which is of mine and shall show it unto you. And you have the three persons of the Godhead. You have one divine essence, but you have three persons. You find this, if you carefully examine the scriptures, although it does not use the word Trinity per se, although the understanding of it is gleaned, from a careful reading of the revelation of God's word. It's a conclusion based on the evidence. He was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, given more than 700 years before his birth. Isaiah 9 and 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father the Prince of Peace. The second question is, why was he born? He must become man. He must become man. He must enter into his creation in order to prevent it from being destroyed. The first man had used essential freedom of choice and chose death through disobedience. Adam's choice would result in death separation from God for himself and all his posterity. The earth itself would corrupt and become subject to dysfunction and eventual ruin. Man must be redeemed or be eternally lost. I want to read to you a passage from the book of Revelation from the fifth chapter. And in this chapter we we find the opening of seals. And the seals, in order to be opened... As they are open, will uh, permit a unfolding and various events to occur, successively and progressively, as the seals are open. If the seals are not open, then these events could not occur. If the seals are not open, the event could not occur. Who can open the seals? This is the portion. And I saw a book on the right hand of him sitting on the throne, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to loosen its seals and no one in heaven nor on the earth nor under the earth was able to open the book or to look at it no one and I wept John when he saw this he wept realizing this is tragedy, multiplied, he wept. He said he wept very much because no one was found worthy to open and to read the book nor to look at it. And one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals of it. Remember, we're talking about why was he born. And I looked, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures amidst the elders, a lamb stood as if it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes. The horns mean strength, power. The eyes refer to insight, knowledge, and understanding. The seven means complete and full. It says, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him sitting on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each one having harps and golden vials full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And you made us kings and priests to our God, and we will reign over the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. And they were saying with a great voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and those that are in the sea and all who are in them saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And The four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the one living forever and ever. I'm going to read a lot of scripture with you this morning. Because, you see, the Scripture says the things that must be said much better than we can say them. And so where it's necessary for me to add commentary, I will. And where the Scriptures speak for themselves, I will read them. This is why he was born. The third question, what was the meaning and purpose of his daily life? The daily life. He must live as we do. Hunger, hungering and thirsting, sleeping, working, being obedient to earthly parents. Hebrews 4 says, but, we, but he was in all points tempted just as we are, yet without sin. He must be obedient to the Father father god he must be obedient to the father in all things according to the humanity he has assumed he willingly laid aside his own royal dignity as god and became obedient to and dependent on god the father he humbly became a man while being indwelt with the fullness of the godhead and as a man he was perfect in all the things he spoke and all the things he did This perfection as a man qualified him to be the perfect Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. The Lamb we read about in Revelation. We must think on this. We must think on this. If such great condescension and perfection is necessary to redeem us from sin. What chance does anyone have on their own? The answer is none. No chance. No chance. We must think on that. Let that burrow its way down into our soul. And so i say this morning run to him run to him don't walk run to him let the earth hear run to him he knew us when he came to prepare the way of salvation for us that's not hyperbole that's actual truth he knew you in advance Acts chapter 4 says there is no salvation. There is salvation in no other one. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Question 4. Why was his death necessary? And what did it accomplish? The perfection of his life qualifies him as a man to live and not die. Remember that. The perfection of his life qualifies him as a man, as a man, human being, to live and not die. Death does not have a legal claim on the perfect man. Only on the soul that sins. Never had a person lived a perfect life and never would again. This meant that if he were to die, his death would be substitutionary. He could not die for himself because he's perfect and death has no claim on him, on the perfect one. So, therefore, if he is to die, it must be substitutionary. He could experience death for others, and this is the reason he became a man. To die in the place of others. But this wasn't all. This isn't all. Since since death did not have a legal right to him, it also follows that death could not hold him. Death didn't have a right to him. Therefore, death could not hold him. Death is in big trouble. I'm personifying because the scripture personifies it as a kind of tyrant as a kind of monarch evil monarch death is in big trouble it has exceeded permitted authority and must surrender the keys death must surrender its authority because it has exceeded its authority absolute authority over death and the afterlife is now secured by the lord jesus Ephesians 4 says, Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He led a train of vanquished foes, and he bestowed gifts on men. In Romans 5, we are told in Romans 5, that by one man sin entered into the world, and because of sin, death. It also goes on and tells us how much more then is it reasonable that those who receive The abundance of His grace and the gift of righteousness that He offers and provides will reign in life through Him, the One Christ Jesus. This is why it's necessary to be born again. Again. Now, to see and fully apprehend this will result in never again being afraid of death. Never again being afraid of death. And if a human being is afraid of death, it's only because they don't understand this. That's the only reason. To understand and know this is never again to be afraid of death. Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of death? Do you fear death? Run to Him. Come to know Him and what He has done. Not just some surface not just some surface idea that you have from Sunday school without the depth of the meaning of it. But to get to the depth of the meaning of it is to never fear death again. Hebrews, the second chapter, Since the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, And deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now the benefits of his life and death do not automatically become ours. They don't automatically become ours. They become ours when we come to the cross as Christian did. Trusting in Christ alone and surrendering to his authority in all aspects of our lives. And this means trusting Christ alone. We have this idea that there's a difference between trusting Christ alone and surrendering ourselves to Him and to His Lordship. There's no difference between the two. There's not a distinction to be made between them. They are one and the same. To trust in Christ and to trust in Christ alone means, means to serve Him and turn our lives over and all aspects of our life over to His authority. Not to do that is not to trust Him. And it is to that one that the merits of his atoning death and resurrection are freely given and it is to that one that the burden rolls from the back down into the mouth of the sepulcher never to be seen again in first corinthians chapter 6 it says and you are not your own you are not your own you do not belong to yourself. Have you ever heard anyone said, it's my body and I can do with it as I choose. You cannot do with it as you choose. Why? Because it is not yours. You say, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in Christianity. I'm this or that. It doesn't matter what you believe or think. He purchased you. He made provision for your purchase. And you do not belong to yourself. So you can't say, I'll do with it as I choose. It says again in First Corinthians 6, For you are bought with a price. You know what the price is. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are gods which belong to Him. Glorify Him in them and with them, because they belong to Him. And the fifth question that I will to you this morning is this did he rise literally and bodily from death and how does that impact us i'll begin to to read with you in luke chapter 24 after following the two men who are walking to emmaus a third joins them and they have a conversation en route to emmaus they come to understand and know who he is as he breaks the bread and blesses the bread in Emmaus and then he disappears and then they return right away immediately to Jerusalem to the upper room it says at that very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those with them gathered together and who said the Lord has certainly been raised and has appeared to Simon and then they began to, descri- to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread And as they were saying these things, He Himself, Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus, He Himself stood among them and He said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? He asked them. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. And when you looked, let me just add this, when they looked at his hands, they saw the marks the nails had made. And when they looked at his feet, they saw the marks the nails had made. And he said, look at them, look at my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself, it's me, this is, this is, this is me, this is, it's, it is I, myself, different, different. But it is the same Jesus. He said, touch me and see. Touch me and see. I'm not a phantom. I'm not, you can actually touch me. I am substance. You can touch me and see. Touch me. Touch me and see, he said. Because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. Did he rise literally and bodily from death? The scriptures are answering the question. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they still were amazed and unbelieving because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? What can I do to prove it to you? He said, do you have anything here to eat? And so they gave him a piece of a broiled fish. And he took it. And he ate it. In their presence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let me read this passage to you. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it. If you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. Now, you must hold to this that you have believed, you must hold to it. You must remain within it. He said, For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the rest. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time, Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep in death. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, remember Paul's writing, last of all, as to one abnormally born, or prematurely born, he also appeared to me. He appeared to me. Yes, it was literal, his resurrection was literal. Yes, His resurrection was bodily. Everything He did from birth, life, death, and resurrection was done because it was the only way, the only way for mankind to be redeemed. The only way to be redeemed. There's no other way. If it's the only way, and there's no other way. Then obviously, reliance upon any other system or way is a fool's errand. And we need to say it. Why? Because it's true. And people's lives, eternal destiny, depends on believing it from the heart. His resurrection is compared to first fruits of the barley harvest. First fruits guarantee the same kind of fruit will soon follow. If you have the first fruits of a a grain crop, the first fruits of it, the early harvested fruit of it, well, that guarantees that the rest of the harvest will soon come. There's more where this came from. That's what it guarantees. And it will look exactly like the first fruit. It will look exactly like the first fruit. He, in His resurrected body, is the first fruit. And we are the guaranteed fruit to follow. We are the guaranteed fruit to follow. We will be like Him when we see Him at His return. When we will go forth to meet Him, we will be like Him. Same kind of body that He has, we will have. In 1 Corinthians 15, listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep or die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. When you, when things are distilled, there's less volume. Just as the 40 gallon drum sitting on your table takes up a lot of space. The sap I referred to at the beginning. You don't want that. Nobody wants that. You've got, not even the gallon, you've got this nice little container of maple syrup. And so, therefore, it's not taking us as long as sometimes it does this morning. Let me come to a conclusion. It's time to dwell in our heart and mind on these truths. It's time to dwell on them. It's time to linger on them. It's time to savor them. It's not time just to think about them quickly and rush off to something else. It's time to dwell on them. It's time to preoccupy yourself with them or occupy yourself with them. It's time to dwell on these truths. All that we hold dear and value is at stake. Everything, all of it, is dependent on this. All of it, every bit of it. Many are asleep concerning the full truth revealed by these questions. Many are asleep, and that slumber will result in eternal death. If we are not deeply moved by this, if we're not deeply moved by this, think of how deeply moved John was on Patmos at what he saw. He didn't just say, I wept. He didn't just say, I had some tears coursing down. He said, I wept greatly. He was moved by it. And if we are not deeply moved by this, it means that we do not really believe it. Because if we really believe it, and I mean really believe it, we're moved by it. If we're not moved by it, we don't really believe it. We don't believe it deeply, profoundly. Because to do so means to be moved by it. Moved by it. It's time to be moved by these things. And if we do not fully believe these truths how secure is our position and how genuine is our fellowship with the Spirit of Truth. Because if the Spirit of Truth is not presenting these truths to us in a way that moves us, then there's something amiss. There's something amiss. Because that's what He does. Do we realize that unless we deeply feel I mean deeply feel the lost condition of the unsaved. Many of us have unsaved in our family, friends, neighbors, people we interact with on a daily basis, some within members, of course, of our own intimate family circles. And they are unsaved. They're not ready. They don't know this. They don't see the cross of Christ. Some of them don't even have a burden on their back because the expectations and requirements of God's law has not been completely and firmly presented to them in a way that it is designed to be. But do we realize that unless we deeply feel the lost condition of the unsaved, that our life is not able to minister to them? There is an ability to minister that is the consequence of deeply feeling the truth deeply processing and experiencing and knowing the truth of the gospel, the consequence of that is influential in the lives of the unsaved without saying anything. But if it comes time, and when it comes time to speak, then there is something, there is a reservoir from which speech is made possible. We have to feel these things. I don't mean just emotionally feel them. I mean feel them, spirit, deep down within our hearts and minds. Feel them, know them, be moved by them. If that touches your emotions, our emotions, then fine, let our emotions be touched as a consequence of our hearts being touched. But if they're not, we cannot minister witness to the unsaved. And we need to dwell on these things, think on these things. Intellectual faith is not able to awaken the conscience or arouse the sleeping soul. It's not. It's not. Intellectual faith. I believe all these things. Oh, I believe all these things. Intellectually, it means nothing. And it accomplishes nothing. Nothing. I'll close this morning from Romans chapter 13. It says besides this knowing the time it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night the night is nearly over and the daylight is near. May the Lord apply His answers to those five questions to us all deeply and profoundly by the Spirit which He has given unto us. Amen. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and guard you, that you would walk in the way that He has charted for you to walk. May His peace and blessing be upon you as you walk that way with Him. Father, we thank You this morning for Your wonderful, wonderful provision for us. We ask that the reality of Your provision would be ours, a way of understanding and spiritual comprehension, that we might be empowered to live the life that You have lived so that we might then live, that we're not on our own in this. We are enabled to live this life, and You enable it. And so, Lord, may your blessing be upon each one as we go forth in your name. Amen.